Our scripture reading this morning is Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Would you stand please for the reading of the word? You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today, we're going to talk about the thing that is most likely to keep you from putting Christ first in your life. It is the same thing that has always kept the people of God from making Christ first in their lives. It's idolatry. Now, I'm guessing that you're going to have a hard time believing this. I mean, after all, you probably don't have any carved stone statues sitting on the mantle of your fireplace at home. And besides, isn't idolatry rather unfashionable now? Uh, I mean, you really don't see people bowing down to statues. You see people tearing down statues, uh, but you don't see people bowing down to one. So why would a conversation about idolatry be of any relevance to you? Right? Well, believe it or not, the most common warning about sin in Scripture does not deal with lying, gossip, adultery, stealing, or even murder. The most common sin in all of Scripture that we're told to avoid, reject, and move away from is idolatry. In fact, the warning against idolatry in the Old Testament is mentioned over 100 times. Well, yeah, but that's Old Testament. We're not under the Old Testament or under the the New Testament. Uh, But the New Testament has a lot to say about idolatry too. In fact, there, there are over 20 references in the New Testament that warn us of the danger of idolatry. Well, okay, Uh, but again, the culture of the Roman Empire in the first century was a lot different from ours. You know, between the Greeks and the Romans, there were thousands of gods. If you go to India, you'll see uh, idols everywhere, and I do mean everywhere. The Hindus have over 330 million gods. How do you keep up with all of them? Uh, But here in the U.S., we don't have idols. Uh, We don't worship idols, do we? Uh, This morning, I want us to see idolatry for what it is and why it is so attractive. And then I'm going to explain the solution to this sin that's so attractive to us. So first of all, what is idolatry? Now, idolatry is not just a pagan issue. It's not just an Old Testament or Jewish issue. It's a human issue. You may be wondering, you know, how can a statue of some pagan deity have any real sway over us? The danger of idolatry is not in a statue. The danger of idolatry is in here. It's, it's in us. Uh, Martin Luther, famous reformer, said, whatever your heart clings to 
and confides in, that is your God. And in other words, he's saying it doesn't really matter what you say on Sunday morning. It's what you do on a day-to-day basis throughout the week. Whatever you run to for security and hope and purpose, for all intents and purposes, that is your God. That's what he's saying. Calvin said something similar. Calvin is uh, famous for having said, the human heart is a factory for idols. Uh, Every one of us is really an expert in creating idols. Augustine, who lived uh, a good number of years before Luther and Calvin, may have said it best. He said, the sin of idolatry is not so much loving bad things or doing bad things, it's loving good things too much. Too much to the point where we love the things more than the one who provided the things. Uh, When you love the blessing more than the blesser. When you love created things more than the creator, that's idolatry. So idolatry is a, a matter of the heart. Now, the best definition of idolatry you'll ever see is found for us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So there we have a New Testament definition of what idolatry is, and it's not a very pretty picture. Now, these are the things that we often run to for security and for hope and for purpose. These are the things that often occupy first place in our hearts and not Jesus Christ. The danger of idolatry is not so much that some 12-inch high wood or bronze or stone statue can do something bad to us. The danger is that We can do something awful to ourselves when we give adoration and attention that should go to God and God alone. Idolatry is still trying to work its way into our lives and distract us from worshiping God and giving him first place. So idolatry is not just a pagan issue. It's not just an Old Testament or Jewish issue. It's a human issue. It's a heart issue. Idolatry is misplaced love. It's taking the love that should go to Christ and directing it instead toward something else, whatever that something else may be. So let me ask this question. Is there any misplaced love in your heart? Have you taken a place in your heart that rightly belongs to Christ and given it to someone or something else? How can you know? Well, a couple of questions may be helpful here. Uh, The first question is this. What is the thing in your life that if you lost it, you wouldn't be able to go on? And the second question is, What is the thing in your life that if you were to get it, you would finally be happy? The answer 
or if the answer to either of those questions is something other than Jesus Christ, the Bible says, you've got yourself an idol. But don't worry, there is hope. The most famous passage of scripture that deals with the sin of idolatry is found in Exodus 32. The occasion is this, the people of Israel have been delivered from bondage in Egypt. And after the 10th plague, uh, Pharaoh tells them to leave. And so they do. Before they do, they go door to door and collect all kinds of gold, jewelry, and um, other helpful things. Um, things that the Egyptians uh, free, freely gave to them. And uh, after they came through the Red Sea, you know, God parted the Red Sea, they could walk across on dry land, and they are in the uh, Sinai Peninsula in the desert there, and they come to the point where they are at the, the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to talk to God, and the people of Israel are still down below. Well, it would be 40 days before Moses would return. And during that time, the people of Israel got tired of waiting, so they went to Aaron, who was the high priest, and asked him to make a substitution for him. Uh, God was not performing to their expectations. They were impatient, were tired of waiting on him. And so they thought they would take matters in their own hands and they would replace God with some other God who would perform according to their expectations. You know, we, uh, we aren't so much different from those people, are we? You know, if God doesn't perform according to our expectations, might it be known about us that we might also take matters into our own hands and uh, we might try to do something to force God's hand? So here's what the people did. At Aaron's instructions, he said, bring me all your gold jewelry. So all this gold that they brought out of Egypt, this beautiful gold jewelry, they came and they gave it to Aaron. And Aaron took it and uh, he fashioned this uh, golden calf. And uh, then he said, or the people said, uh, behold the, the God who brought you out of Egypt. And they start dancing around this calf. Well, we don't understand that. That has nothing to do with Western civilization in the 21st century. It, it just seems absurd uh, that people would, you know, dance around some uh, golden calf and worship it as though uh, somehow that's going to bring you uh, something that only God can provide. Uh, so let me take a couple of minutes to help us understand what's going on here. Uh, why was idolatry so attractive anyway? Well, understanding what idolatry is helps us understand uh, what so many stories in the Bible are about. Understanding idolatry uh, also helps us understand what our hearts deeply long for. Again, dancing around the golden calf makes no sense to us until we understand what that idol represented. First of all, what was the idol made of? 
It's made of gold, right? All this melted jewelry. And what was it fashioned in the image of? Uh, it's a calf. Well, that sounds strange to us until we learn that in Egypt there was a god named Apis. Now, they, they had a, a lot of gods, but this particular one um, who was named Apis looked like a calf. And the land that the Israelites were on their way to, uh, to take for themselves as their new home, the land of Canaan, the Canaanites also worshipped a god named Baal, who also was fashioned in the image of a, a bull, a, a calf that had grown up. So the, 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 the calf or the golden calf was associated with fertility, with strength, and with wealth. So what you have here is a group of people who were disappointed with God. They don't understand what he's doing, so they turn to power and sex and money to satisfy the restlessness in their hearts. Hmm. Just imagine that. Somebody turning to power, sex, and money, thinking that those kinds of things could solve their problems and bring about lasting satisfaction. What an antiquated notion that was. Thank goodness we have progressed far beyond that. Or have we? Is there really any difference between ancient idolatry and modern idolatry? Let's think about what the Israelites did. Well, first they got impatient with God. Then they took the gold that God had given to them when they left Egypt and they turned it into an idol. When Aaron had finished molding, he was the high priest, when he had finished molding the golden calf, the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so what they were doing is that they made God into the image of who they wanted him to be. We don't do that kind of thing, do we? I mean, we don't try to fashion God into the one God that fits us exactly. We don't try to fashion him into being something that we really want him to be, even though that's contradictory to what the Bible says he is. You know, the Israelites were convinced that they were worshiping God, even though it was clear that they were worshiping an image of who they wanted God to be. Well, later in the passage when Moses confronted Aaron about why he built this calf, Aaron offered nothing but excuses. All he had to say was, well, people brought me this jewelry and I put it in the fire and out came this calf. You know, when we worship idols in our lives, we can create our own form of logic for why we are justified in anything less than God. Idolatry is not just a problem for people who lived in another time and another place. A, idolatry is a problem. It's not just a problem. It is the overarching problem in life, in this culture and in every culture. 
Idolatry, which is to worship as something other than God, is at the root of all sin because sin seeks to steal glory from God to whom it belongs and take it for yourself. It's something that every one of us faces every day. So, how can we be free from idolatry? Well, how does Aaron respond when Moses confronts him? You know, he blames Moses. Don't get mad. It's no big deal. He blames the Israelites. You know, these people are evil. And he blames the golden calf. You know, I threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. It's the calf's fault. You know, Aaron is the high priest who was supposed to be the first to ask God for forgiveness. But instead of asking for forgiveness, instead of confessing sins and asking for forgiveness, he blames everybody else but himself. He's the only one in all of history to have ever done that. You see how relevant this really is? How difficult it is to put Christ first because someone else occupies that place. Someone else occupies the throne. Someone else comes above everyone else. And you know who that person is. We all feel that way about ourselves. We all want to be God. That is, we want to have authority we want to be served we don't want anyone telling us what to do but getting back to Aaron he doesn't mediate meaning he doesn't go between the people and God uh, Moses comes along later and and does some mediating but 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 Aaron's not doing that he's running away from the problem You know, if we want to overcome our idols, you can't run away from the problem. You can't pretend that the problem doesn't exist. You have to own up to it, which is why we have a time of confession of sins in our worship service. It's why when just before we partake of communion, we have a few moments of quiet reflection and we think about what our true mediator, Christ, has done for us and why he must be first. So, who is first? Who deserves to be in the place of honor? Who deserves to be worshiped above all? It's Christ. We come back to these questions again. What is the thing in your life that if you lost it, you wouldn't be able to go on? That life just wouldn't be worth living anymore? And this next question, what is the thing in your life that if you were to get it, you would finally be happy? you would be totally satisfied. Again, 
If the answer to either of those questions is something other than Jesus Christ, the Bible says, you have yourself an idol. Now, after 40 days on Mount Sinai, Moses made his way back down the mountain with the tablets of stone in his hands. And as he approached the camp and saw the calf and the groups of people dancing around the calf, Moses' anger burned. He threw down the tablets that he was holding and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And at the end of the chapter, God sends a plague as punishment for their sin. Now it's beginning to really sound contemporary, isn't it? Said all the people who were sitting there with masks over their faces to do battle with the plague. Could idolatry and the plague be connected in any way at all? Just asking. Don't despair. There is hope. Some 1,500 years after this incident, at the foot of Mount Sinai, a deliverer greater, greater than Moses would come and pick up those broken commandments and march them right back up another mountain. Only this time the mountain was not Sinai, it was Calvary. Colossians 2.14 tells us that Jesus picked up the written code that we broke and canceled it by nailing it to his cross. And because of what Jesus did, we will one day sing and dance and have a real party, but not around some golden calf, some idol we will celebrate around the life of the party. I want to close by focusing just for a moment on the lavishness of God's grace upon an idol worshiper that involved a calf. You remember the parable of the prodigal son last year? We spent several weeks looking at that parable. A man had two sons. The younger son wanted his share of the inheritance now. He was not willing to wait. Does it sound familiar? He got impatient. And so the father divides his inheritance between his two sons. The younger son, whom we associate with the term the prodigal son, indulges in a lifestyle that reflects what the children of Israel were doing in the desert when they worshiped the golden calf. They were partying According to the older son, there was some promiscuity involved. Uh, by the way, uh, sexual immorality was inextricably intertwined with idol worship. Uh, they believed in those days that if they engaged in sexual activity, then the gods looking down would want to engage in that kind of activity, and then the blessings would come. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the, their cows and their sheep would uh, bring forth more cows and sheep, and the crops would flourish, and the rains would come, and it, it would just be, this was the thing they could do to make prosperity happen. And so what's the connection between the story that involves a golden calf and the story that involves a fatted calf? It's an illustration of the distinction between the Old and the New Testaments, 
between a preliminary and partial revelation of God and the full revelation of God in Christ. The Bible says, Romans chapter 1, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God is not some golden calf, it is Christ. In Exodus, God Almighty reacts to sin with righteous anger by sending a plague as he did in Genesis when he sweeps the whole world clean of sin through the flood. And were it not for Moses' intercession, it's likely that God would have destroyed the calf worshipers and started all over. But Moses did intercede. And so only 3,000 of them died. In the parable of the prodigal son, God, the compassionate father, looks past the sin of his son and he shows mercy. He lavishes his son with grace. Now the older brother of the prodigal wants his younger brother to be punished. But the father insists on mercy. The father calls for the killing of the fatted calf in celebration of his son who was dead and is now alive. The story of the prodigal son illustrates the contrast between seeking satisfaction for yourself by turning away from the father and on the other hand, seeking satisfaction of the soul that comes through repentance and turning to the father. The elder brother insists that he does not, speaking of his brother, his brother does not deserve such treatment, such lavish grace. And the father does not contest this. No argument. The prodigal deserves nothing. But the father, in his generous mercy, gives him everything. Now here's the good news for us today. God's freely given, unmerited grace precedes even our expression of sorrow. In fact, with, without God's grace, we can't even make the first step on the road back to him. He loves us while we were yet sinners and seems to lavish the greatest graces on the most undeserving. This is who God is. When you come to know God for who he truly is, he becomes far more attractive than anything we can invent in our own minds. In the Bible, parties and indulging in the cravings of the flesh always, always come to a bitter end. But the celebration that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit invite us to is one of great extravagance. The gospel is illustrated through the contrast of two calves. The one where the Israelites worshipped in the desert and the one that was killed in order to separate or, or to celebrate the repentance of one who turned away from idolatry. True lasting satisfaction can be found not in idols or anything that idols represent, but in Christ 
and in Christ alone. For those who put Christ first and worship him as he truly is and not who we want him to be, there is deep, deep satisfaction. Why settle for a golden calf which ultimately brings only sorrow? When you can see God for who he really is, urging you, pleading with you to come in and celebrate and bring satisfaction that never, never comes to an end. This is who God is. It's represented to us in human form in the person of Jesus Christ who laid down his life and interceded for us so that we might have true, lasting, genuine satisfaction. Let's pray. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, through your spirit we come to you now and acknowledge that we need a savior. We need someone to deliver us from the bondage of idolatry. All of us are guilty. We acknowledge that we either try to fashion some God out of our own imagination, or we try to redefine you and make you who we want you to be. And so we miss out on knowing who you really are. But as we study scripture and becomes clear to us that you are a God who is, who, who is pleased to lavish mercy and grace upon the worst sinners, those who have chased after other things that have promised satisfaction from the time that the serpent first enticed Eve to eat the uh, forbidden fruit uh, claiming that it would bring satisfaction that God was withholding from her. Um, open our eyes, Lord, that we may see the truth of who you are in your word. May we embrace you gladly, eagerly, joyfully. And may we also, by the power of your Spirit, Go into the highways and the byways of our community and urge those who do not know you to come to the celebration of life and find satisfaction that lasts for all eternity. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.